Thank you. Man, yeah, it's, uh, man, it's weird to be back because i got to be honest with you, as I look around, I don't recognize half of you, which, which is good, right? Because that is the mission of the church, to reach new folks, to reach new faces, people of all ethnicities and, and, and of different gender and people just walking different lives, but still in this lens of faith that we have in Jesus. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful to be back. And, you know, I, I could share a lot about, about Citizens Church, um, we turn one years old uh, next month. March 27th will be our one-year anniversary. And just to give you, yeah, thank you. And it's been really cool just to give you some kind of screenshots of where we've been at in 2021. Um, we saw 12 baptisms. We averaged 67 folks and 15 kids uh, in attendance. We have four groups that are meeting all across the triad and community groups. And uh, just some really, really cool things have happened. And I only know these things because we, we were looking over the end of the year. We had 106 Connect cards. That's 106 folks not on our launch team. And, you know, of course, there are new folks that didn't fill those out. But we, we were able to connect with, with that many new faces. And I share all that because anytime we talk about these numbers and these logistics, they're just testimony of God's kindness, that he would use crooked sticks to draw straight lines, that he would use a church like New City to plant a church in Kernersville, North Carolina, that will go on to, Lord willing, plant multiple churches in the triad and to the nations. And so we are just, man, me and my wife, Emily, we are, we are so grateful to be back. And it's really cool, even though it's a little weird, that <laughs> I used to know everyone I was the weird guy with the captain's hat giving tours, and now it's like, I don't really know who you are, but that's okay. But all that stuff is boring. Here's the real truth. The greatest thing about New City is the team that you have here. And I could go on and on about how great Dylan and Brittany and Brian and Christina and Kevin and, and you know, all the folks that have done what they're doing here. But the thing that I truly appreciate about your pastor, Dylan Dodson, is he allows me to go back to my middle school days. Now, you don't see this a lot, probably on Sunday mornings from Dylan, but I just have a few memories, and it was hard to pick one, but I just got to share one, and Christina, I promise you it's appropriate, so you're looking at me like. <laughs> but I remember uh, one of the first times that, honestly, I'd ever hung out with Dylan, and consequently, Brian Androsian. The Androsians were pretty new to New City at this point, and we, me, Dylan, and Brian, and uh, a friend of ours named Cameron that was here, we went to Exponential Conference in Orlando, Florida. And Exponential Conference always takes place in March. And so uh, we were down there. And, you know, March here can be hit or miss. Like, you know, back in Kernersville, we had days of 75 and sunny, and then the next day it's snowing. But, you know, Orlando in March isn't that bad. And we thought, why not go swimming? So after we worked all our hotel room stuff out, because let me tell you, a Florida queen bed is a North Carolina like twin bed. That's what we found out. <laughs> so after we worked all that out, we, we go down and we're like, well, let's go to the pool. And there were other pastors and ministry leaders staying at this hotel. And we quickly recognized that we are the only ones playing pool basketball. All the other guys are smoking cigars, standing around fire pits. And we are the only people in this pool. And then we decide... There's a slide over there. <laughs> Guys, I am not making this up. So we run up the stairs. It's nighttime. No one's in the pool. We have this like high schooler lifeguard, and we're like, can we hold each other's feet while we go down? <laughs> He's like, bro, I don't care. <laughs> so we're making trains. 
And we're like, okay, let's see, who should go first, who should go last? And we are literally holding each other's feet, going down these slides while all these other men are smoking cigars, standing around a fireplace, talking, you know, theology, because that's what Theo bros do, I guess. Um, and so I just appreciate Dylan so much because he, he allows me to go back to our middle school days. And I'll never forget that lifeguard when we were like, but, but can we go down head first? And he's like, you're, you're, you're older, you're an adult, do whatever you want. And so we're splashing in the pool and it's just an awesome time. And so I, I appreciate that. Um, the Gospel of Mark. Here's where we're at. There's, there's no reason to share that story other than you, you probably wouldn't have heard that if, if, if I didn't. But man, it, it really is great to be with you. And those who are watching online, um, it's great to be with you as well. But today as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, and as we get to today's passage, we are about to unravel one of the greatest testimonies to the glory and the honor that is due to Jesus. You see, throughout the Gospel of Mark, and we've talked about many just awesome scenes within this gospel, and the disciples have seen many miraculous things. But as we get to this passage today, Jesus is going to lead three men up a mountain where they are going to see something that they would never forget. And before we even dive into Mark chapter 9, which is where we'll be this morning, let's actually take a look back at last week, Mark 8. It'll, it'll be on the screen so you can follow along. This really sets up where we're going this morning. So let's reread it together. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit? What does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. You see, Jesus, as he speaks these words in Mark 8, and as we see the scene in Mark chapter 9, Jesus is taking his disciples and plunging them head first into the idea of, this, of, of his glory through two things, which we'll look at today, the authority of the Son of Man and the suffering of the Son of Man, right? We saw this last week. As we read Mark 8, Jesus is being very clear. If you are to follow me, this is what the path looks like. And good news that if you follow this path, well, good news, bad news, I don't know how you take it, you might lose your life. But whoever would lose his life for my sake here on this earth, whether it be in the things that we wish and the things that we desire and killing those things, or whether it be literally by the sword, whoever loses his life in this life will find life in the next. And now Jesus paints this picture in Mark chapter 9. You can turn there. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, there's a black Bible somewhere around you. And if you do not own a Bible, man, I, I miss saying this. You can take one of these Bibles home with you. But Mark chapter 9, that's where we'll be this morning. And this is what it says. Let's just look at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, he took James, and he took John, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. And he was transfigured in front of them. Now let's just pause here because verse 2 is going to set the stage for what is going on. First of all, we see an audience. 
It's Jesus taking his three disciples of Peter, James, and John. We see a place where this is happening. The scripture tells us that it was a high mountain. Many people believe that this might be Mount Tabor, but really if we were to look at the topography of where they're at right now, a better mountain would be Mount Hernan because it's just north of Galilee, and that is more likely where they're at. This is an historical mountain that Jesus is taking his disciples up on. So we have an audience, we have a place, and then you noticed at the end of verse 4, we have a purpose, and it says that he was transfigured in front of them. Now all of these things are purposeful, for what God the Father is about to do. And the disciples are included in this. But this is not new. This setting of a mountain is like a broken record-like description in the ministry of Jesus. I mean, this is not new to the disciples, for they saw him on a mountain where he prays. They saw him on a mountain where he preaches. He performed miracles. He's tempted. He calls his disciples. He sends them into mission and accomplishes the passion all on a mountain. Jesus is like a broken record in when he does his miracles. And this is just a side note, that mountains are just so cool. I'm so glad that Jesus does some of the greatest things on a mountain because mountains are just outstanding. In fact, there should be a picture. Me and my wife got married in the mountains. Oh, I know. That was five years and like 20 pounds later for Adam. But uh, So we got married. That's Hanging Rock. And it was just such a, a cool scene, right? It's like if you're going to be married anywhere... Get married in front of a mountain. So that was where all the chairs were taken down for pictures, but that was the backdrop to our wedding. Mountains are just fantastic. Ironically enough, the mountains were almost the place that me and Emily got divorced. Uh, we were on staff retreat, and you know, Dylan and Christina had this, this big itinerary for the staff, and one of the days we had free play, and there was no pool or no slide, so we had to go do something else. Um, and, and Emily was like, well, I know this great hiking trail. To which we were like, great, let's do it. Two and a half hours later, we made it back to the cabin and had not even been out of the car. Now, I have to confess this morning, I was not the happiest. And you know I wasn't happy because Brittany Androsian sitting in the back seat never said a word. <laughs> it didn't help that on the way to the staff retreat, I got like my sixth ticket and Emily's sitting there saying, I hope they arrest you. I hope they arrest you. I hope they arrest you. <laughs> So two and a half hours later, we still don't know if it was the GPS's fault or, you know, I, I don't know. So it's, it's just interesting. Mountains play an interesting part of our story. And in today, we see that it, mountains also play a, play a scene in this story. But this isn't new because not only did Jesus do a lot of things on mountains, but the Old Testament is full of mountains as places of worship and especially revelation. You see, in the, in the Old Testament, mountains were places that not just revealed landmarks, but they were places that God would do incredible things. We're not going to turn there, but if we were to go to Exodus 24, we would see, maybe you're familiar with this, this, this story of Mount Sinai, where the glory of the Lord was on the mountain for six days, and then on the seventh day, the glory of the Lord gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. It was on this mountain that he was given the revelation from God, and it was in this revelation that we are given this picture from the very beginning that you and I are not the law keepers, but we are the law breakers in need of a new gospel. It was on this mountain that we see that in this revelation of the Ten Commandments, we see a picture of who is to come, this man, this son of God that is to come, and his name is Jesus. That's why Jesus gets the authority to say, if you follow after me, I set the rules and you don't. 
It was on this mountain that we see that. So from Exodus 24 to the early history of the Israelites, all the way to Mark 9, we could say it like this. It is the character of God to reveal his glory to us. It is the character of God to reveal his glory to us. He cannot help himself. We just came out of Advent, right? And what is that season about? It's the anticipation of the revelation of God coming in the form of an infant who got hungry, who needed to be held, the embarrassment of having like a body that could bleed. It was this revelation that we see that God is truly revealing himself. And then Hebrews would go on to say that he's the exact imprint of God. That same baby that was revealed in a manger, he is the exact thumbprint of God who laid privilege aside and would traverse a mountain all the way to the cross to pay for the sin of you and I. But maybe you're here today and you're not sure about this Jesus thing. And you're like, I, I don't have any revelation uh, uh, from God. Like, that, that's, that's weird. Like, I, I don't even know the story of Mount Sinai. What is Hebrews? Like, maybe, maybe that's you this morning. Number one, man, we're so glad that you're here. But number two, the Bible has something called general revelation where even if you're not familiar with this whole Jesus picture, this Jesus figure, the psalm says it like this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. The mountains that we just saw, and, and I'm sure, I mean, don't hurt my feelings if you want, you probably looked at that mountain and you thought, man, that is incredible. And that's not even a mountain. My wife has been to like Wyoming and Utah, and she's like, those are mountains. But even in stuff like that, we, we see something. In your favorite hiking trails, in animals, in one another. We see something and it causes us to marvel. Well, the Bible calls that general revelation. And so even if you're not sure about this Jesus thing, the good news is God is revealing himself to you because when you walked out of your house this morning, you felt cold air. God has revealed himself to you. And especially today in dealing with our passage, this transfiguration that we're going to jump into is flashing the sign that says, not only am I revealing myself to you, but this is why I came. Let's look back down at it in verse 3. And so the scripture tells us that he was transfigured in front of them, and here's what it says. And his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared with them, with Moses... And they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, which means teacher, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. Now, the nature of this transfiguration, we, it, it, we have to be super clear here, church, because this was not a change in Jesus' nature. This was not an inward, now Jesus is the Son of God because the glory of God has descended upon him. What this is, is an outward appearance of, 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 of transformation for Jesus. This is super important for our doctrine that as we read passages like this, or where we're studying back at Citizens in Kernersville, we're in the book of Acts, and, and, and today at Citizens, they're going to be looking at the Spirit coming. But the Spirit was not created at Pentecost, and Jesus is the eternal son of God that has always been. 
It's on this mountain that while his outward appearance is glowing before them and it's vastly different than anything they had experienced, he is still the eternal God. But also the scripture tells us that not only did his outward appearance change, but they weren't alone. Now what's interesting to me is if I was Peter, James, and John, and you saw and you recognized Moses and Elijah, were they told by Jesus this is Moses and Elijah? Did they announce who they were? Many times we say, man, when we get to heaven, we're going to ask so many questions, get so many answers. And I just don't think that's true. Because for whatever reason, when they were not alone, Peter's just like, hey, let's set up shelter. They didn't ask any questions. Peter didn't ask him to like sign his, you know, uh, papyrus or whatever Peter had with him. Like they were just there and they were talking to Jesus. But that leads us to the question. Why were they there during the transfiguration of the son of God? Not just why was Peter, James, and John there, but why was Moses and Elijah there? Now, some have said, well, Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. So for them to be there, it's showing that Jesus is the culmination of both of those things and a culmination of the Old Testament. As we look back to Exodus 24 and we see the Ten Commandments, we see Moses is given the law, but of course they don't keep it. And so Jesus is the culmination of the perfect law keeper. And that could be true. There could be a myriad of reasons why Moses and Elijah are here on this mountain with them. Before our time today, rather than spending too much time on the presence of Moses and Elijah, I think their departure speaks volumes in understanding the redemptive history timeline that we have from Moses and Elijah to Jesus. What I mean by redemptive history timeline is that this book is on a timeline. That's why we open this book. It's on a timeline that, yes, there are historical events, there are actual places, actual years that people lived, that people breathed, even the Son of God, Jesus. There was a time that he came. But from Genesis to Revelation, it is a picture that all, everything from, from nations to testaments to tongues to tribes, it all culminates to this person of Jesus, and so maybe you're asking today, why is the departure more important? Because if Jesus truly is the culmination of all these things, why wouldn't we hit on and why wouldn't the scripture hit on that they stayed there and this is what they talked about? It's fascinating that it says who's there and they were talking, but we have no account of what was said. And departure is just weird in this moment because Peter even thinks so. If we were to look back down, Peter says in verse 5, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up shop. And he said it because he didn't know what else to say, and he was terrified. And I get that energy. <laughs> I, I will not share it, but there's been a few times that I have said something because I didn't know what else to say, and I shouldn't have said it, okay? So I get that energy. And many times we read this, and we think, Peter, you are so ignorant. Just keep your mouth shut. But Peter here is not being ignorant. You see, within Judaism, what they practiced there was this belief that one day God would again tabernacle with his people. We see that in both Zechariah and also even uh, extra biblical writings such as Josephus. And here in this moment, Peter may be thinking of this. Lord, if there's one day that you were going to once again tabernacle with us, stay with us, surely it's this moment <laughs> when you're radiating before our eyes and Moses and Elijah are here. He's not being ignorant. He's not saying, well, I want to hog all the glory, so let's stay up here. But he is saying, well, this makes sense from what I've learned from a, as a boy. 
So let's stay here. And Peter has to be thinking, if not when, Lord, if, if not now, when? It's good for us to be here. It's good for us to set up shop on this mountain, but folks, here's the good news. They cannot and will not stay on this mountain. I said in the beginning that this passage would show Jesus' authority, but also his suffering. And as we continue to read, I hope you notice this as we really dissect what's happening here. So Peter has said, let's stay here. But here's what it says in verse 7. Let's look back down at it. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning to themselves what raising from the dead meant. Two things here. The first thing that we see here is that for Moses and Elijah to not be there when the smoke clears literally, we see this, that the glory of God in this scene is shown in the authority of Jesus. For the smoke to clear and for Moses and Elijah to be gone, but for Jesus to be there left standing, it is showing us he is the better Moses. He is the better Elijah. Verse 7 tells us, God the Spirit is, is, is talking, God the Father rather, is saying this, this is my son, listen to him. Now at the baptism of Jesus, we heard God the Father say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. But as we get to Mark 9, everything is shifting now and our sights are set on the cross and God the Father is saying, when the smoke clears, he is left standing, listen to him. And it's interesting that this immediately follows the words that Peter spoke about staying and making a shelter. And if we could for a second, let's just realize this, that as much as Peter wants to build a tent for Jesus and the guests, God is saying, Peter, you do not uphold God, he upholds you. Do you realize this morning that in Christ, God is upholding you? Do you know this morning that you can trust his authority over your life, that as God says, this is my son, listen to him. That we can take that as he is a promise keeper and he has full authority to do everything that he wants to do. Do you know that you can trust him this morning? Do you know that the gospel is the good news, that Jesus has done everything to build a tent of grace for you? This is my son, listen to him. It's been said that as Moses left the mountain of Sinai, he left the mountain of law. But here, as Jesus descends the mountain with his disciples, he is leaving the mountain of gospel. After this transfiguration, they cannot stand there. And Jesus is not going back with Moses and Elijah. He is staying put. And thus we see the scene where Jesus is leaving the mountain with his disciples. And for Jesus to come off this mountain, he is showing his followers the path of the kingdom. The path of the kingdom is not perfection. It's not exaltation. It's not good work and effort. It's the path of suffering, right? We saw this last week. 
Jesus, before he ever is transfigured on this mountain, talks to his disciples and says, if anyone wants to follow me, lose your life. And the bottom line that we saw last week is that we follow a suffering king. He doesn't follow us. And so not only is the glory of God seen in the authority of Jesus is where God the, Son, God the Father says, this is my son, listen to him, but the glory of God is seen in the willing suffering of Jesus. For Jesus to have full authority, yet still walk the path of suffering is mind-blowing. Do you realize that this morning? Jesus is showing us as he walks this earth that he lives in this strange economy where the hungry shall be filled, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, and those who mourn shall be blessed. He models this. He models this all the way to the mountain of Calvary, and this is so important for us to grasp today, that as Jesus descends this mountain of transfiguration, he is ascending the mountain of Calvary. And you and I this morning, as we recognize the authority of Jesus and the willing suffering of Jesus, you have to hear this, that God is calling you to walk on the path of suffering. He's not calling you to traverse the mountain of Calvary. He's not calling you to muster up enough effort so that you can pull yourself up on a cross and add to the sacrifice that Jesus has already paid for. And many times I have to confess in my own life, especially now leading a church, that if, I mean, think, guys, this is very shallow of me. I confess that. If there's more people in the room, what did I do that blessed God the previous week? And if there's not as many people, God, what are you trying to tell me that I did wrong? You see, you and I have this great temptation to try to traverse this mountain of religion, traverse this mountain where we know that Jesus has all the authority. We sing that, we confess that. But maybe if I add just a little something, something, he'll be much happier with Adam. I will see many more blessings in my life if I would just do the right things, right? Jesus, if I could just have a small little part, not the cross that I'm going to carry for my daily dying, but a cross that I want to carry because I actually believe it, it does depend on me just a little bit. And Jesus is modeling this, that I am not leaving with Moses and Elijah. I am tr coming down this mountain with you so that I can begin my ascent to Calvary while I ultimately display my glory to you. The same God that was shining like no launderer could ever get his clothes wide enough, the same God whose face was shining in Mark 9, at the end of Mark, we're going to see the same God hanging on a cross and people casting lots for his clothes. And the disciples who saw this glory, they're actually in hiding. For Jesus to climb that mountain... <laughs> It tells us that we don't have to climb that mountain for him. And, and, and in this book of Mark, we have read that the glory of God is seen in the willing suffering of Jesus. He is coming off this mountain, not because he is a puppet, but because he is the savior of the world. He's coming off this mountain to begin the climb to Calvary. And as we end today, let's, let's look at this because the disciples are about to get a real life example of this. Jesus is not do as I say, not as I do, Jesus is going to model this, but before Calvary, we even have an example of this. Let's look back down at it in verse 11. 
They asked him. So they, they've, they've kept quiet. They, they know to keep quiet. But they asked him, why do the scribes say, the religious leaders, that Elijah must come first? Verse 12. Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And then verse 13. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it was written about him. So once again, the disciples are not ignorant to this redemptive history within Israel. And the disciples are asking the question, why did the scribes say that before the glory of the Lord is to make everything new, Elijah must come? Now, if we were to turn to Matthew 17, and we won't, Matthew also has an account of the transfiguration. And right after this question, as Jesus you know, repeats this back to them, but also mentions that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they wanted to him, Matthew in Matthew 17 lets us know that the disciples understood, oh, he's talking about John the Baptist. That it's not just the Old Testament figure of Elijah, but it's, it's, it's rather, remember the guy that we mourned just a few weeks ago, a few months ago? Elijah has come. And John the Baptist is this Elijah figure. You see, John the Baptist was the spearhead, right, of Jesus' ministry, the one who prepared the way of the Lord, the one who said, the one who comes after me is before me, and I'm not even worthy to unstrap his sandals. John was the spearhead, and ultimately, he would be beheaded by the state, and Jesus would mourn that. Jesus and his disciples would mourn the news that John had actually done what Jesus talked about in Mark chapter 8. Denied himself, took up his cross, and followed the way of Jesus. Ultimately, John would die, and that is why Jesus is saying what he is saying here, that while Jesus is an example of willing suffering, Peter, James, and John, this is just what happens. It's not new. It's not surprising. We've seen this in John. We're going to see this in Jesus, and we're going to see this in the three disciples that were mentioned here. That Jesus is not telling them and not telling that John did. John did not go to Calvary, but John was killed for his faith. And you guys as well, one day, you will be persecuted. And all of this example is in the willing, suffering servant that we see in Jesus. And so today, as we close, maybe today has been the opposite of encouraging to you. And yes, I was given a passage that's all about suffering. But I think it's actually encouraging this morning because there's comfort in this, that suffering is a shared human experience. Suffering is a fact of life. And we don't rejoice just because we suffer. We don't go looking for it. Jesus never told his disciples, go look to be persecuted. Go rile up the city. But for us here today, and for the men in this story, we are viewing suffering through a new lens. You see, there was a coach in, uh, back in Kernersville. He's, a, he's an offensive coach for a high school there. And uh, five days after Christmas, him and his wife and their two little boys, uh, the house burned down. They lost everything. And, uh, you know, we, we were asking ourselves as citizens because... Um, we have an athletic director of a local high school at our church, and, and he knew this coach. And so, um, you know, we were raising food line gift cards and Walmart gift cards for them. 
And I was able to take them to him at, at the high school and just talk a little bit. And, you know, he was, he was overwhelmed with, with thankfulness to our church and the community has just surrounded him. But he, he told me it was interesting. He's like, man, God has worked in this house fire. He was talking about how right before Christmas he was sharing with his boys that they're just spoiled. <laughs> he was like, I was kind of sharing my boys, like, you know, these gifts, like they're great, but like, you know, we do way too much a lot of times and that life is more than presents. <laughs> and he said, and wouldn't you know it, five days later our house burned down and we lost everything. And he shares this story of suffering through a new lens. That his lens is not... I'm so happy my house burned down. But his lens is, even though the house burned down, God has been so good to us. And we will rebuild. And we are healthy. And they view it through a new lens. And you and I have that opportunity this morning to view the shared suffering experience that we all have through a new lens. And the good news this morning as we look at our bottom line is that the glory of God is seen in our lives when we suffer well. The good news is that as we look through this new lens, suffering well is not suffering wasted. The things that you and I go through every single day, whether this week has looked like heaven for you or whether it's looked like hell, you and I have this opportunity to view this life through the lens of faith where we see Jesus has set the example as the suffering servant. And because he suffered, I have been given life. And now when I suffer, I can look to the God who has come before me, who is after me, who is upholding all things. And we realize that we do not suffer as people with no hope or no purpose. Whatever you are walking through today, are you tired? Are you broken? Are you depressed? Are you sad? Are you suicidal? Are you finding yourself in those places today? Come to Jesus and experience his glory in the midst of your suffering. The Psalms tells us that he is the lifter of our heads, and he's the lifter of our heads because in the gospel, because Jesus would leave the mountain of transfiguration, and would ultimately ascend the mountain of Calvary to die on a cross, to be physically buried, and to be bodily resurrected. He is the lifter of our heads because he's the lifter of our spirits. He has breathed life into your soul because of the gospel. And if you are in Jesus this morning, you have not just this example, but you have this life inside of you that says, man, it's not that you love suffering, but boy, am I glad that I have an example and a God who is with me in the midst of all suffering. And that I can suffer well knowing that as we look through the lens of faith, he is the lifter of the head. He is the restorer of all things. That is the good news. He proved that in the gospel. If he can save your soul, he can hold your hellish Monday. And this morning as we close and as the band comes up and we continue to worship Jesus, I just wonder where you're at this morning and that if you need this lens to suffer well, that you need Jesus to do a new work in your heart, that you need the son of man, the son of suffering to come and do a new work in your spirit, to change your lens, to change your gaze to the 
the one who would pave the way for us to have life. The glory of God is seen in your life and in my life when we suffer well, understanding that Jesus, by grace and by kindness, is doing something, doing something miraculous in the face of what you're going through. Suffer well, saints, because suffering well is not suffering wasted. And hold on to that day because as New City and Dylan continues in the book of Mark, our sights are set on the cross. That's where we're going. Everything that Jesus is going to be teaching from now on, our sights are set on the cross. And so set your sights on the God who would die for you. And set your gaze as the Son who is now in heaven reigns eternally. And he is uplifting you.